Father, we ask your blessing now. We pray that you will be with us. Give us uh, wisdom. Give us an understanding that will see more, at least, to the root of issues and help us to be wise in how we go about dealing with them, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. <clears throat> the way is prepared and disease invited. Anybody remember that statement? Right? Totally different topic, I understand. Um, but it's talking about health. And it says disease doesn't come just as an accident. Disease comes because the way is prepared and disease is invited. I'm going to ask you to bear with me a little bit with an imperfect illustration. Okay? I understand it's imperfect. And naturally, I don't defend any of the faulty aspects of it. <laughs> but nonetheless, consider the illustration a little bit, if you would. You know? The church is the body of Christ. And the church can be healthy, and the church can be sick. And sometimes we prepare the way for disease, and we invite it in. Ellen White says this little phrase a fair number of times. As in the natural world, anybody know how to finish it? So in the spiritual world. As in the natural world, so in the spiritual world. And here's the statement. Disease never comes without a cause. The way is prepared and disease invited by disregard of the laws of health. Many suffer in transgression of, in consequence of the transgression of their parents. While they are not responsible for what their parents have done, it is nevertheless their duty to ascertain what are and what are not violations of the laws of health. They should avoid the wrong habits of their parents and by correct living place themselves in better conditions. So now, here's the thought that I want to just kind of float out there. And like I say, it's not a perfect illustration. I understand that. The disease which now afflicts the Adventist church, I would suggest, is something that we have prepared the way for and invited in. And it won't do us much good to address the disease without addressing the underlying causes. Does that make sense? Okay, so all I'm saying, is, like I said, the illustration is, you know, it has some merit and it's a little weak. But what I'm saying is that there are often, you know, reasons behind the things that we see. So that's what I want to take a little look at. Disease is an effort of nature to free the system from conditions that result from a violation of the laws of health. In case of sickness, the cause should be ascertained. Unhealthful conditions should be changed, wrong habits corrected. Then nature is to be assisted in her effort to expel impurities and to reestablish right conditions in the system. Okay, well, in my little metaphorical illustration, I would have to modify some things here. Heresy, yeah, I don't know 
that's an effort of nature. I think the devil gets quite involved, actually. <laughs> um, you know, give credit where credit is due. I, I don't think it's just a natural thing. But nonetheless, the idea is that I'm suggesting is that we have missed the boat in some ways. We have missed the mark. A little more biblical expression. We have missed the mark for decades. And what we're reaping now is the natural result. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. They reap the wind, or they sow the wind, they reap the whirlwind. Um, you know, there are some really interesting things in the, in the natural world. Um, I have a whole little sermon, which I will not go into at length for you right now, uh, on the laws of the harvest. You know, and the truth is that what you sow, you will reap, and it doesn't do much good to, you know, as the old saying goes, you know, you sow your wild oats and pray for a crop failure. You know, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't often work that way, okay? The basic truth of agriculture has to be that you're going to get back more than you put in the ground. You plant one bushel of wheat and your harvest is one bushel of wheat, a, you're not feeding yourself, and B, you're, you know, you're not going to keep that thing going, right? Okay, So <clears throat> you can always expect that the results are going to be more intense than the apparent cause. That's what I'm saying. Okay, So take it or leave it. You may or may not like the illustration. I don't have a problem if you don't. The cause should be ascertained in the case of heresy just as much as in the case of disease. I'll defend that part of it. Unhealthful conditions should be changed. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Wrong habits corrected. Okay. And then again, nature. I think this nature down here would be more along the lines of God, whereas this nature up here is probably more along the lines of the devil when we're talking heresy, at least. But, <clears throat> okay, well, let's go on. You'll notice the title on this slide here is The Hills of Gaboa. You remember Ellen White's comment of how we had in the 1870s and 80s, we had preached the law, the law, the law, until we were as dry as the hills of Gilboa. I'm suggesting that we've done something a little different that left us just as dry. <laughs> okay? <clears throat> Everywhere there is a tendency to substitute the work of organizations for individual effort. Human wisdom tends to consolidation, to centralization, to the building up of great, great churches and institutions. Multitudes leave to institutions and organizations the work of benevolence. They excuse themselves from contact with the world, and their hearts grow cold. They become self-absorbed and unimpressible. Love for God and man dies out of the soul. There are other statements. I don't have them all in here, but, you know, she says, it's good to support worthy causes with your finances. It's not sufficient. If that's all you do, you will die spiritually. It just doesn't cut it. Somewhere along the line, you have to be involved with people. 
And I'm going to suggest that partially, largely, I would say, as a result of the feelings, the emotions, the choices which came out of our conflict with Dr. Kellogg 100 years ago. Uh, three years after he was disfellowshipped, we were in the process of trying to establish Loma Linda as an institution and decide what to do with it and all. And I won't go into the details. It's in my book, The Sozo. But we took a particular turn. The Lord opened the way, I believe. He changed the laws of the state of California to give us a blank check on what we were going to do with Loma Linda. And we chose instead to let someone else write the check. Well, that makes it sound like they were paying for it. That's not quite true. Uh, we paid for it. <laughs> we, we let someone else write our mission statement is what happened. <clears throat> it wasn't all bad, but it wasn't all that God designed it to be. That's just my opinion. You can, you know, again, take it or leave it. Feel free to differ with me. I won't have my feelings hurt. Um, <clears throat> but largely out of that twist of, of events, seemingly totally separate from anything else that we're focusing on here, we headed this direction, organizations. Partially it was cultural, at least in the United States and Canada. I'm not sure. The rest of the world, you know, I'm, I'm not a world traveler enough to know, so I can't argue for that. But there was a, a time period when, just from my reading of you know, accounts from back in the day, it was really, really cool to be like, a member of an organization. It was just like a cool thing. You see traces of this even, even in the Adventist church, you know, where you read these accounts of, uh, who all was it? Um, oh man, I'm pulling a blank right now. It'll come to me. Anyhow, the, um, the young man and his two or three friends that started the missionary volunteer movement um, Luther Warren was the, became a pastor, Luther Warren. Luther Warren, and I think it was two other friends, three other friends, something like that. They just started, they started the missionary volunteer movement, okay? And when they did it, and I'm not saying this is evil or whatever, but when they did it, it was the thing. It was the cool thing to do. They drew up a constitution and bylaws and they had, you know, this was, they, they started an organization. That was, that was the thing, okay? It was, a cool thing. I'm not against organizations. I'm not against institutions. I am against anything that pulls people away from personal ministry, though. Does that make sense? <clears throat> Christ commits to his followers an individual work, a work that cannot be done by proxy. Ministry to the sick and the poor, the giving of the gospel to the lost, is not to be left to committees or organized charities. Individual responsibility, individual effort, personal sacrifice is the requirement of the gospel. I don't know about the rest of you,
But I don't, I don't come up that well on that, that particular measure stick. I'll just be honest. It's very, I'm, you know, I, I, you may not think so because I'm standing up here talking, but I'm an introvert, you know? Really, seriously. And, and I go home and it's just like, you know, just shut the world out. I don't really want to deal with them. I'm trying to learn, but it's something I'm consciously having to choose to do. Individual responsibility, individual effort, personal sacrifice is the requirement of the gospel. And I don't want to be harsh, but I have a sneaking suspicion that the vast majority of Adventists in North America, at least, come up really pretty short on that. Just going to guess. In our work for God, there is danger of relying too largely upon what man and his talents and ability can do. Thus, we lose sight of the one master worker. Too often, the worker for Jesus fails to realize his personal responsibility. He is in danger of shifting his burdens upon organizations instead of looking to and relying upon him who is the source of all strength. But it is a great mistake to trust in human wisdom or numbers in the work of God. Success is not dependent upon talent or numbers. Now, I want you to notice this, though. Here's the contrast. It always boils down to this. We can do the thing with what man and his talents can do with organizations and institutions and whatever else she says here. Uh, there's organizations again, okay. We can do it that way. But when we do, it always subtracts from this experience. Looking to and relying upon him. Dr. Kellogg gave a series of talks at the 1893 General Conference session that were edited out of the General Conference Bulletin and consequently no one paid any attention to them for 120 years. Um, when a copy of them fell into my hands, that was the final straw that made me say I had to write a book. But he said something in there that just really kind of slapped me up alongside the head. And I really, really like it. Wherever you want. Um, <clears throat> he quoted Proverbs 19, verse 17. It's easy to remember. That's the year World War I ended. Okay. <laughs> Proverbs 19, 17. And it simply says this. He who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay. If you have one of, you know, if you have like a New King James, you have the added benefit, although, yes, admittedly, it's not in the original Hebrew, but yeah, you have the added benefit of capital H's and lowercase h's, you know, for like deity, right? Okay. And what the verse says is, he who has pity on the poor and gives the poor guy something is lending to the Lord, and he, capital H, will repay. How much do I depend on that particular promise? 
Okay, well, let's go on. In the place of shifting your responsibility upon someone whom you think more richly endowed than you are, work according to your ability, even though you have but one talent. All our works must be wrought in God. Each one of us is to do his own work in the Lord's vineyard. We must not look for someone else to do the work that lies directly in our pathway. Personal responsibilities must be borne. Personal duties must be taken up. Personal efforts must be made for those who do not know Christ. And for those who do this work in faith, the Holy Spirit will work as it worked for the disciples on the day of Pentecost. Well, that's a bit of a promise. Okay, so what I'm saying, put this back into the historical context, is essentially that because we messed up with Kellogg, as I've said a couple of times, hope you catch the idea, you know, we defended our theology, and that was good. But in the process, we lost the right arm of the gospel, and that was bad. What was worse, we didn't even notice it. <laughs> it was like we had no idea it was missing. It's like, we don't know why the shirt doesn't fit so well on that side. <laughs> you know, it's just, it didn't seem to bother us a bit. And because of that, we lost a large component of, of personal work and personal dependence on God. And we got to the point where, you know, I don't know, I, I don't think most of us ever really consider much about depending on God for day-to-day -day existence. One of very, very, very few lines from a sermon that I can remember from I don't know, what, 39 years ago now or something? Oh, brother, anyhow, whatever it's been. I don't remember many sermons that long. To be honest, I hate to say it, but most sermons last about an hour or so. I don't know. <laughs> I'm just saying the truth, sorry. Anyhow, but I remember this one sermon. It just stuck with me. It was an old uh, Adventist minister from down south. And he just said this. He said, we don't have to depend on God so much because we do such a good job of it ourselves. <laughs> That's all he said. You know? I, you know, it's not all he said. It was more to the sermon. But he says, when was the last time we were actually in a position where, you know, it was make or break, God came through for us or we were hung out to dry? That's, that's really depending on God. And we're not, we're not used to that. We're used to, you know, being responsible. And I'm not saying being responsible is a bad thing. We're used to having a job, getting a paycheck, you know? And, and those are good things. I'm not saying they're bad things. But there's something about this personal duties, personal efforts, personal responsibilities, you know? And, and when we do that, God makes himself responsible to take care of us. The policy of consolidation, wherever pursued, 
tends to the exaltation of the human in place of the divine. Those who bear responsibilities in the different institutions look to the central authority for guidance and support. As the sense of personal responsibility is weakened, they lose the highest and most precious of all human experiences, the constant dependence of the soul upon God. Man is placed where God should be. We have a sort of a theological term we use for man in the place of God. It's the Antichrist. <clears throat> I remember when the 1888 materials, the four big brown volumes first came out. <clears throat> been a lot of uh, interest in that, okay? Um, see what time it is. Yeah, okay. Um, squeeze in a story here real fast. Sure tell a relative of mine was a guy by the name of Robert Wheeland. Um, I didn't know him that well as a relative be honest, he was very short tail. But I met him a couple of times, chatted with him a few times, got to know his story a little bit, read his material, starting with 1888, re-examined onwards. Okay, some of you would remember all that. <clears throat> There's a really interesting article. You can still find it on the internet. Go out and just Google for the name Wheeland and then the phrase in quotes, out of Africa. Just Google that article. Um, what's his name? Hokama, Ho, what's his name? Hokima? You would probably know him, Danny. But anyhow, um, uh, some guy that we don't normally think of as being all that friendly to conservative Adventism was the, was the author. But Wheeland was perfectly satisfied that the guy had written a fair article. Um, and it tells the story. And basically, when Robert Wheeland brought up the question of 1888, when he had come back from Africa on furlough, he was a missionary in Africa, come back from Africa, and he raised the question in the context of a class at the seminary, which was still in Washington, D.C. at the time. Yeah. It was a raw enough, sensitive enough topic that he was expelled from the seminary with 24 hours get off campus. And that got his curiosity up. And so he, before he left town, since he had no continuing reason to stay in Washington, D.C., he says, I've got to find out what this is all about. He went to the White Estate. He just asked a question? Well, he, I won't say he only asked a question. He, um, he was trying to explain a slightly different perspective on righteousness by faith, and he was asked, where did you get that idea? And he says, well, I, I got it from a book that my professor gave me a few years back when I was still in college. And the question was, what was the book? And the book was The Glad Tidings. And that's what got him kicked out. 
Um, it was a very, very raw topic. Now, let me, let me put, let me just say some things here on this. You got to have some charitable assessment when it comes to people. Okay. The guys that kicked Wheeland out of the seminary. They were the generation that were trained by Willie White. Willie had just died two years before or something like that. If there's one thing that Willie learned from his experience, it was that conflict and controversy and, and battles in the church don't do you much good. And if there'd ever been any one big battle in the church, it was this whole 1888, A.T. Jones, E.J. Wagner, you know, uh, that whole thing. and the, Kel the last thing they wanted was anybody to bring that all up again. And so, yeah, I know, it's, it's ironic, isn't it? So Whelan brings this up and says, whoa, nip that in the bud, bam! Well, yeah, right, that didn't work. <laughs> so Bob Whelan, Dollar Whelan, went to the White Estate the next day. So he did know something about when he was at the seminary, he raised a question, he had a book. Yeah, well, he didn't have the whole book. He had several chapters that he'd typed out because they didn't have photocopiers in those days. <laughs> I don't think I can live without a photocopier. Anyhow, <laughs> so, but anyhow, so uh, um, yeah, he had his, his opinions, and he was differing with the um, professor, who just happened to be George Vandeman. So, you know, and uh, you know, he hadn't managed to reach a conclusion with Vandeman, so he'd gone to the president of the seminary, and that didn't work out so well either, and he was given 24 hours to get off campus. Um, now, he may have said some young, brash, you know, things. I don't know. I wasn't there. But, you know, that's the general drift of the story. But as I say, he went to the, seminar, or to the uh, White Estate the next day. And he went in and he asked. He says, I'm, I'm really interested. I, I, I don't, I'd like to understand this 1888 thing. Well, it just so happened that there was a big meeting going on that day. And the men, which is a term used at the White Estate for, I think they've probably moved away from it now, but for several decades, the men were the members of the actual estate themselves, okay? The men were all off at this meeting. And all there was was some poor little female receptionist type. She said, well, you know, we don't really let people into the vaults. She said, well, I understand, but, you know, it's, could you bring some things out for me? She said, well, you know, uh, uh, uh. Well, it turned out that her nephew was a missionary in Africa, and he knew this guy, and uh, they got to talking. And, and so she said, well, I don't know. You know. I'll see what I can find. So she went in. She came out with this folder and gave it to, to Wheeland. And he sat down. And he starts reading this, and he says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Interesting stuff here. Whoa. And he says, <clears throat> excuse me, I have a little portable typewriter out in my car. Would you mind if I got that and typed some of these? Oh, no, that would be fine. Okay, so he goes out and gets his typewriter. All day long, right? Five o'clock, they're shutting down. He says, may I come back tomorrow? Oh, yes, that'd be fine. Well, he came back the next day, and the men were back. And he couldn't get that same folder. He asked for the folder, and he was handed a folder that was obviously a little bit different. And he looked at it and said, well, I don't know what this is, but it might be interesting. And he looked at it for a while, and he figured out eventually that it was the, the raw source materials for testimonies to ministers. Well, he already had a very nicely bound copy of testimonies to ministers and didn't feel the need of typing it all out again. So <laughs> he said, you know, may I have the folder I had yesterday? And the poor receptionist lady was looking very nervous. And she says, I think you'll need to talk with one of the men. 
And so he ended up talking with, and I forget who it was. It's all in the article. It's, you know, it's a nice, honest piece of historical reporting. And the upshot of that was that he was asked to leave the estate. What that did is it put in his mind a very obvious thought. And I, I, I can't fault him for the thought. The thought was, Jones and Wagner somehow started the loud cry with their preaching. Something's happened to it. I don't see it going on now. The answer is in that vault, and they won't let me see it. You can see how he'd come to that conclusion. Well, so he went down to Florida, and he immediately wrote to every old minister in the domination and said, hey, do you know anything about 1888? <laughs> do you have any old manuscripts? Do you have any old letters from Ellen White? Do you have anything from Jones Wagner? Do you have anything from anything on anything that has anything to do with 1888, Minneapolis, A.T. Jones, E.J. Wagner? Please, I'd love to have it. <laughs> and all these old ministers who were like two steps from death, they, they said, why, surely, here's a a fine young man, and they mail all this stuff to him, and so consequently ended up with the world's largest collection of 1888 trivia. Did he find the answer he was looking for? No, he never did. But his concerns raised a lot of issues through the 60s and the 70s. And so in 1880, or 1988, the White Estate, I think wisely, although, yeah, you know, decades too late, <laughs> said, let's do a dump. Everything we've got that mentions A.T. Jones, E.J. Wagner, Minneapolis, 1888, Righteousness by Faith, anything, put it all into a book and get it out there. And so this was all published, right? So I'm a young buck. This comes out. I'm prime. Oh, man, now I'm going to find out what starts the loud cry. Here we go. Heavy-duty theology. And I jumped into this stuff and read all the way through it. And you know what? There's precious little theology in there. There's precious little theology in there of that kind of theology. There's nothing earth-shaking in those books in terms of some new, different, radically different understanding, theoretical expression of righteousness by faith. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that it's the same as everything else. There are all sorts of variants out there that are, are warped off of it. But it's not something that should be surprising at all. It's nothing that would have surprised Wieland. The problem, I would say, in my opinion, take it or leave it, was not that we were lacking the theory of 1888, not that we were lacking the theory of righteousness by faith. We were lacking the simple understanding that it goes beyond theory. And it's like climbing two ladders. Just imagine I've got an extension ladder right here, and I've got an extension ladder right here. And I can put my right foot on a rung, and I can put my left foot on a rung. But you know what? If I leave my right foot on the first rung, I probably can't go much more than about the third or fourth rung on the left side. See what I'm saying? <laughs> OK? You, you can't do that. And there's a balance 
Call it faith and works if you wish, you know. But as we apply and as we learn the righteousness by faith, and remember the statement we had this morning, you know, good works appear. The poor are not neglected. The widows and orphans are cared for. That's what converted people do. And as they do that, as they carry out their personal responsibilities, their personal duties, right? That's when the, that's why, that's when the Holy Spirit has a reason to kick in and do something for us. Otherwise, we don't have to depend on God much because we do such a good job of our, taking care of ourselves. <laughs> right? It may seem totally divorced from everything else that you think I'm supposed to be talking about. But this shifting of responsibility, I think, was huge. And, and separated us and prepared us for the dangers that we're facing today. Let's go on. <clears throat> um, we read this one already. Man is placed where God should be. That is... Uh, can I find it rapidly enough here? I don't know. Um, <clears throat> the, um, that idea is what came, comes up more often than anything else in those 1888 books. Okay? Um, it was amazing. Is the abuse of, of power, both from those below looking up, placing man where God should be, and those who are placed where God should be starting to think that they're God. Does that make sense? You follow what I'm saying? It's the laity that tends to corrupt the ministry because we're too lazy. And we go to them and we say, oh, pastor, what should I do? There's a great statement. I'm getting a little off of this a little bit, but... <clears throat> A fantastic statement. The people of God have educated themselves in such a way that they may have come to look to those in positions of trust as the guardians of truth and have placed men where God should be. When perplexities have come upon them, instead of seeking God, they have gone to human sources for help and have received only such help as man can give. God removes his wisdom from men who are looked up to as to God. Did you catch that? It... It, it, you almost get the impression it might not even be the other guy's fault. God removes his wisdom. Those who occupy positions of trust are greatly injured when they are tempted by their brethren to think that they must always be consulted by the workers and the people should bring to them their difficulties and trials. It is a mistake to make men believe that the workers for Christ should make no move except that which has first been brought before some responsible man. Remember 1901? Shoving the decision-making out, okay? <clears throat> Goes on. This is, this is incredible. Though at first the brother may be reluctant to take so great a responsibility as that of being a counselor in this negative sense, okay, telling people what they have to do when it's something that should be between that person and God, right? You understand the idea? Man where God should be, Right? If there's something that I should look to God and say, God, what would you like me to do? And instead I look to brother so-and-so or pastor so-and-so and say, you know, 
what should I do? I'm placing that guy where God should be, okay? Though at first the brother may be reluctant in taking so great a responsibility as that of being this negative sort of a counselor to his brethren, if he does do it, he will finally encourage the very dependence that he once lamented. Do you follow that? This is stunning stuff. It's like, so I'm the new conference president. And people start coming to me asking all these crazy questions. It's like, uh, that's, I can't answer that. Man. It's, that's, that's, that's between you and God. You need to go pray about that. But they keep it up day after day, week after week. And finally, I get so tired of it that the guy comes and he asks me some crazy question. And I say, well, you know, I think if I were you, I'd do this. If he does do it, he will come to encourage the very dependence he once lamented. And the statement goes on. And he will come to feel grieved if matters are not brought to his attention. He will want to understand the reasons for movements made in the cause that have no connection with his branch of the work. This is my operation here. You guys quit. Who told you you could think for yourselves? Stop it. It goes on. It may be argued that the Lord gives special wisdom to those to whom he has entrusted grave responsibilities. Okay, so, I mean, this guy just got elected conference president. Surely the Lord's going to give him special wisdom. That means he's got this responsible position, right? So you'd think he's got, you know, brother so-and-so, he's the, he's the conference president. He's, he's got to be smarter than the rest of us, so the Lord will, will give him greater wisdom. It may be argued that way, she says. The Lord does give special wisdom to him who has sacred trust. Oh, well, that's why I'm asking him, because he has special wisdom. If the human agent, the conference president in my illustration, if the human agent, moment by moment, makes God his only helper and walks humbly with him, God will then give light and knowledge and wisdom in order that his human agent, the conference president, may be able to guide his brethren who would look to him for counsel as to their duty. So God does give him special wisdom. Here it is. In a clear and forcible manner, he will point them to a source that is untainted and pure from the defects and errors that are so apparent in humanity. He may, for it is his privilege, refuse to be brains and conscience for his brethren. That's the special wisdom that leaders are supposed to give. It's to not lead, act, putting themselves in the place where God should be. Question. Was this specific problem that she's addressing, was it only on the local, was it on for the conference president and the conference center, or was it on the local church level or all levels was she referring to? All levels. All right. In 1888, she made a comment to her daughter-in-law in a letter. She said that uh, Elder Butler was, had been the president of general conference up to that time. She said he has been placed where God should be. This has destroyed his brain nerve power he has been in office for three years too long and has come to think himself nearly infallible. In my book. <laughs> I don't remember the exact quote, <laughs> but I, I quoted it in there. And if you remember, do you remember that famous... <sighs> the, the famous quotation on, on, from Minneapolis, you know? 
Well, this is the letter to George Butler at the time of 1880. You refer to your office as president of the General Conference. Did this justified your course of actions, which you deem totally right, but which from the light the Lord has been pleased to give me, I deem to be wrong in some respects? The very fact that you are standing in a position of responsibility, I urge upon you, is the reason why you should show a forbearing, courteous, Christ-like spirit at all times. And he was saying, for crying out loud, I'm the president. I've got to decide a few things around here. I've got to put my foot down. That's what presidents do. And she says, no. not what presidents do. Here's the statement. Why did 1888 happen? This is the most diagnostic statement in the whole subject. What was the reason for 1888? Now, it has been Satan's determined purpose to eclipse the view of Jesus and lead men to look to man and trust to man and be educated to expect help from man. For years, the church has been looking to man and expecting much from man, but not looking to Jesus, in whom our hopes of eternal life are centered. Therefore, God gave to his servants, Jones and Wagner, a testimony that presented the truth as it is in Jesus, which is the third angel's message in clear, distinct lines. Why did we need the third angel's message in clear, distinct lines? Because we were looking to man. What has that got to do with receiving the mark of the beast? That's the whole point of the mark of the beast. <laughs> you know? The whole world says, you worship on Sunday or we'll kill you. And God says, you worship on Sunday and I'll burn you. Take your pick. You know? Who are you going to look to, God or man? Who are you going to put where God should be? That's the whole point. And it comes down all the way to this stuff. We're not... You know, we aren't dealing with the mark of the beast at this point, I would suspect, because we're not ready, okay? We're dealing with little stuff, but we're not doing the little stuff. And he that is faithful in that which is least has a fighting chance <laughs> on that which is much. Okay. <clears throat> and then everything changed. For decades... We had been very comfortable and happy in this be a little quiet cog in my local church. It was cool to be a member of something. We'd go marching out in our Jasper Wayne ingathering groups, you know, and we'd earn our little tag that says, you know, I solicited 5,000 houses, you know, or whatever it was. You know. We'd do this stuff, and it was, it was very... Compliant-oriented, let's put it that way. 1960s, 1970s, some of you remember them. Some of you are too young. Everything changed in the culture. Boring was out. Everything conspired. It just, I, I believe the devil manipulated That's just my personal opinion. I think that the devil set up this whole thing. And, and you know, look at it. This is a generational thing, okay? Because the parents in the 60s and the 70s were people that had lived through the Depression. They knew what it was like to be dirt poor. They'd lived through the war. They knew what it was like to not be able to buy stuff because it had to go to the war effort. They knew what it was like to storm ashore on D-Day, you know, on Normandy Beach and get shot at. And they were very, very comfortable with the idea of just... Just give me a nice little house. 
Give me a steady job. All I need is a paycheck. I just want to provide for my wife and kids. That's all I want. Just peace. Just enough food and peace. That's all I want out of life. And the kids came along, and the culture shifted, and all of a sudden, the last thing in the world that was desirable was that kind of peace, right? And all of a sudden, it was the peace, man, <laughs> kind of peace, okay? And this huge change where everything shifted, right? <clears throat> Rock music, be one influence. Sports, TV in general, movies, video games, drugs, everything came along and what it was driving was a desire for intensity. I don't, I don't want peace and quiet. I don't want, I don't want to just be a, 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 you know, go take a job and work for 40 years and get a gold watch and go rock on the porch, you know, in my rocking chair. That's, that's not what I'm into, okay? The church did not know what to do with this. All of a sudden, the older generation was still very happy with a kind of a formalized church experience where they were comfortable because they belonged. They were part of the organization, and that satisfied them. The youth didn't give a rip about the organization. They wanted some intensity. They wanted some excitement in life. They wanted something to make life interesting. They wanted authenticity. You've heard the expression. What does it mean? Oh, it's very authentic. What's that, what's that word mean to you when you hear that? You know, I'm, I'm looking for a more authentic way of life. Somebody have a functional definition for me? Pardon? Real? Man. Possibly so, yeah, yeah. Honest. Well, you guys are pretty ideal. Ah, there you go. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I'm just tell you, it's, it's not in the dictionary. I understand that. But I think the functional definition now of authentic is internally validated. You know, it has to appeal to me. That's what's authentic. You know, it's. Freudian, Skinner, Skinnerian, you know, Jungian, self-actualization, right? If you ever suffered through that kind of nonsense. Um, <clears throat> so what are they going to do? You know, and, and, and we tried. As a church, we said, wow, we've got to adapt to this. What are we going to do? So in 1967, for instance, we made one big change. How many of you remember the youth instructor? The youth instructor gave way in 1967 to a new publication called Insight. And the basic difference between the two was that the youth instructor was founded on the premise that the youth of the church wanted to serve God. And Insight was founded on the premise that the youth in the church needed to be somehow one to serving God. 
that's my, I, I don't have an official statement on that, but that, that would be my observation of it, okay? And so how do, we how do we make religion attractive to these kids now who want authenticity and intensity? How do we do that? Well, hmm. how many of you remember the way out? <laughs> this was like 1972, maybe? Danny? Yeah. Huge evangelistic thing with this. Uh, all I remember was this, this big spiral with the purple and orange spiral, okay? <clears throat> it's basically what it was. It was intended to appeal to someone who was attracted to the countercultural movement of the day. And, you know, God bless somebody for trying. God bless the next guy for paying attention to how God says to try. <laughs> you know? Okay? Um, as I understand it, after you know, a year or two, um, and I don't know, a million and a half dollars into the program, there was one baptism. You know, way out. Yeah, and it had this big spiral with this guy kind of silhouette, oh, you know, kind of, he's spinning down this. Uh, you can find pictures of it on Google. Google. Oh, yeah. What's that? Yeah, that kind of stuff. It's a whole package program. <clears throat> when I came to Christ, people dumped that stuff on me. Mm -hmm. They were showing me a way out. I was trying to find a way, way in. in. <laughs> 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 okay. Yeah, just go to Google Images and type, you know, way out Adventist, and you'll probably find some remnants of it still. You know, was okay. Bible yeah. Not? Yeah, it was Bible studies and other things. It was, you know, it was, you know, somebody put together a big package trying, you know, trying to reach these kids. And, and like I say, and I, I, you know, I have my differences of opinion with them. But you know, God bless them for trying at least. It, it, it didn't work to any notable degree, but God bless them for trying. You know, but what have we got wrong? What's 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 missing with all this, right? Um, through the 70s, you know, I graduated from academy in 76. And according to the statistics, it's the 1976 graduating class that had the lowest retention rate of Adventism, Adventist members, 10 years later. Okay? By 1986, it was, I think it was 17% of the graduating Adventist class of 1976 were still church members. This is college. Academy, academy. Mm -hmm. I think it was 17. Yeah. That would mean 83% had left the church in 10 years. <clears throat> From that year on, that percentage improved in terms of church retention. Why? It's because we we let everything that they wanted into the church. You know? And I can't fault them at one level. I don't like a boring life either. I'm not good at boring. 
but I don't need you know, a rock band for Sabbath school to make life interesting. It doesn't really work. Switching from the hills of Goboa to the hills of Nazareth. The more quiet and simple the life of the child, the more free from artificial excitement and the more in harmony with nature, the more favorable it is to physical and mental vigor and to spiritual strength. We are surrounded by a culture that has, has done everything it can to destroy that. 17 million cable channels, or whatever the number is currently. <laughs> you know, sports, music, TV, movies, drugs, everything. I mean, even the wholesome stuff, I couldn't believe, you, know, you can't believe you know, these, these people. It's like, oh, well, I got to take Bobby to soccer practice on Tuesday, and I got peewee football on Wednesday, and I've got ballet practice, and I got, you know, and it's bam, 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 just everything, everything, everything. They're slaves to their children because they have to make life interesting for them. They have to have something constantly going on. What has that got to do with anything? <laughs> okay. What are we going to offer them? Do we offer them more formalized church. You know, there are an awful lot of churches, small churches, Adventist churches that are dying. I read a statistic a while ago. The average age of Adventist membership in North America is 15 years older than the average age of the population. I don't know if that, understand what that means, but it's not a good sign. The average age of Adventist membership is 15 years older than the average age of the population. Okay. You know, I've moved uh, eight months ago or whatever from Kansas, Nebraska, North South Dakota, Oklahoma, all these little country Adventist churches out there with 15 members. Average age. 67 and a half or something like that, you know. They're dying. They will go. Give them another three, five years. They'll be gone. There will be no one there to turn the lights on. Is that what we're going to keep our kids with? Is that what we're going to, you know, offer people? Say, this is real Christianity, brother. I don't think so. Do we need the rock bands? I don't think so. But what do we have to offer them? What is the answer? God's purpose in committing to men and women the mission that he committed to Christ is to disentangle his followers from all worldly connivings and policy and to give them a work identical with the work that Christ did. That they might continually be Christ's representatives in character. What was the work that Christ did? What was Ellen White's term for it? Teaching and healing, medical missionary work. Okay. Constantly working with and for people on a very personal basis. That's God's purpose. A work identical. I about 
choked on my dentures. I don't even have dentures, but I about choked on them anyhow when I read it. I mean, identical. We're supposed to be doing something identical to what Jesus did. The statement goes on. Christians should bear in mind that God has a personality. Why did she bring that up? Because this comment is in the context of pantheism. That's what she's dealing with. Christians should bear in mind that God has a personality as verily as has Christ. They should so represent Christ's person and conduct that by doing his work they will manifest the character and spirit of the Father. Christ is the express image of his Father's person and character. Those who are imbued with his spirit will have an intense... Everybody wants intensity. They want meaning in life. Here's where you can start to find some meaning. Those who are imbued with his spirit will have an intense love for everyone for whom he died and will work earnestly because they're getting a high salary? Probably not. What makes a person work earnestly? Because they have something they believe in. They have something worth dying for. You know, if you don't have something worth dying for, you don't have anything worth living for. They will work earnestly to bring into the heavenly garner a harvest of souls filled with his spirit. Men and women will be animated with the same desire to save sinners that animated Christ in his life work as a missionary sent of God. Animated, again, is a, another word that means there's something going on. Well, our time is just about up. But I, I think it's, to me, it's important. I know this has been a weird session. Appreciate your patience. But this lack of supplying that need is why we've got the emergent church walking into Adventism through wide open doors today. People are looking for something, and those guys have something to offer. He said, the lack of supplying the need for a reason to live, a reason to be a Christian, a lack of putting some punch and power and drive and, and enthusiasm into it, is why people are flocking to the, the other. Because it's authentic. It's all validated from within. And we'll pick up on that thought in our next session. So let's bow our heads. Father, we have a tendency to get eloquent with theory. I pray that you would uh, help us to take something of practical value from all this. May we struggle with these things. May we not avoid underlying issues as we try to address things that are flying in our face today, but help us to solve the big problems, the, the, the hidden problems sometimes. Give us wisdom and guidance, we ask in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, 
please visit www.audioverse.org.